Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Today we are beginning a new series. We're going to be in the book of Esther. And as we're going through the book of Esther this time, I think it's going to be fun to kind of look and see what's taking place. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about Providence. I'm going to talk to you about getting tickets to get out of China. A TV show called Four Weddings. Anyone remember that show? No, that's a popular one, I guess. OCD and the difference between Kronos and Kairos. You guys ready? All right. So the book of Esther. Now, this is a story. And so I want to go through chapter one, but I wanted to go through chapter one in the message translation to kind of give us an understanding of it as a story. And I thought this was a great translation to bring into kind of clarity the idea of what is happening. And so I'm going to go through this in chapter one in the message translation. And so we can read it together. It says, this is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes, the the Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. King Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The military brass of Persia and Media were also there, along with the princes and governors of the provinces for six months. Think about that. For six months, he put on an exhibit of the huge wealth of the empire and its stunningly beautiful royal splendors. At the conclusion of the exhibit, the king threw a week-long party for everyone living in Susa, the capital important and unimportant alike. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to silver rings on marble columns. Silver and gold couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in gold chalices, each chalice one of a kind. The royal wine flowed freely. A generous king. It was open bar, right? The guests could drink as much as they liked. King's orders with waiters at their elbows to refill, refill their drinks. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside King Xerxes' royal palace. On the seventh day of the party, the king, high on the wine, ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants 
Mayhem and these other guys to bring him Queen Vashti's splendor in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good looking. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs. The king lost his temper. Seething with anger over her insolence, the king called in his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his expert advisors. Those closest to him were Karshina and his friends, the seven highest-ranking princes of Persia and Media, the inner circle with access to the king's ear. He asked them what legal recourse they had against Queen Vashti for not obeying King Xerxes' summons delivered by the eunuchs. Memucan spoke up in the council of the king and princes. It's not only the king Queen Vashti has insulted. It's all of us, leaders and people alike, in every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? King Xerxes ordered her to be brought before him, and she wouldn't do it. When the women hear it, they'll start threatening their husbands with contempt. This is funny, by the way. You guys should be laughing inside of this. The day the wives of the Persian and Meda officials get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? No, we don't want that. So the king agrees, let him pronounce a royal ruling and have it recorded in the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it cannot be revoked that Vashti is permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence. And then let the king give her a royal position to a woman who knows her place. When the king's ruling becomes public knowledge throughout the kingdom, Extensive as it is, every woman, regardless of her social position, will show proper respect to her husband. The king and the princes liked this. Of course they did. The king did what men can propose. He sent bulletins to every part of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language. Every man is master of his own house. Whatever he says goes. There were, uh, yeah, yeah, you guys are in dangerous ground. There, there were no men or there were no women in her in his cabinet, right? This was, hey guys, this is what we think. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Esther is the last of the Hebrew scriptures. It's probably the last book written in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and in fact, it was possibly the last book written prior to the New Testament. It also belongs in another special category. It is a story that reveals how God is faithful when the people of Israel are in exile. Right, We have uh, other stories that take place, Joseph or Daniel. And, and all three of these characters, Joseph, Daniel, and Esther, found favor with important people who assisted them. All three experienced radical reversals with those who tried to destroy them. And yet each story has its own message. 
And that message is revealed in defining ways throughout the passages. Joseph, when we read through Joseph, one of the things that we see, a phrase that takes place is that the Lord was with Joseph. And so it's kind of a common theme. I would say probably the most known verse or probably the most, uh, I don't know, impactful verse regarding Joseph, defining verse, if you would, if you would, is when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? It's like you had your way, the brothers, but God had his way. And God had a way of taking what you did and making it something that was good. Daniel, same thing. His survival as a faithful Jew in the Babylonian empire. And it says of Daniel that he would not defile himself with the king's food and the the king's delicacies. And so it's kind of a defining verse. But also the defining verse explains how that Daniel would pray kneeling continually three times a day, giving thanks before his God. And so we see a faithfulness in Joseph. We see a faithfulness in Daniel that results in God working in and through their lives. But what's the message of Esther? Esther is unique because this book did not make it into the Dead Sea Scrolls as far as we know. The Dead Sea Scrolls are basically uncovering of all the Old Testament scriptures and writings about the scriptures in the Old Testament, even uh, commentaries on them. But the book of Esther is not in that at all. And yet it made it into our scriptures. It made it into the Christian scriptures. And it's interesting why, because some people realize that something is different in the book of Esther. It's unusual because God is never mentioned throughout the entire book, not even in a generic reference, kind of like Nehemiah says, the king of heaven. There is no reference to God in any way throughout this entire book. He's not present in, in the story, not as a character who's on stage or someone who would actually speaks, right? We could read Esther as a secular story a story that doesn't have God mentioned in in any way. And where we find fasting without prayer, we find feasting without praise. These are things that happen. And it seems like God is not mentioned in these things that happen when they fast. It's no mention of prayer. It's just they fasted. When they're feasting, there's no mention of praising or showing this to God. God is absent, was not an oversight though. The writer had to purposely and intentionally and almost difficultly exclude God from what's taking place here because providence takes such an important role that there would be no story without it. And providence is divine guidance or care. There's supposed to be another passage there. Okay. You're saying, what is that? You see... As you read these stories and you have hindsight, you could look back at Joseph, you could look back at Daniel, and you could look back at Esther and say, oh, I can see how God was involved. And it always looks like it's something that's happening. The grass is greener on the other side. That's what this picture is. It's like the grass is greener over there. It's the same right under your feet, silly cow, right? It's the same thing. And we can think, oh, yes, they had it so good. But really, they didn't see providence at the time. 
They didn't know God was working. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He was in jail for years before he got to a position where the providence of God finally showed up. And throughout that time, you cannot say, oh yeah, this is no problem. It wasn't until the end of the journey, he could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But throughout the journey, this is difficult. The same thing with Daniel and the persecution that took place and the exclusion from all his people. You see, when things are happening, it does not look good. And the whole point of the book of Esther is sometimes you go through your life and it seems that God is not there at all. I don't hear his name. I don't hear his voice. I don't sense his presence. It's as if he's not in the story at all. And not until you get to the end do you find that he has been there the whole time. And I love this because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I do not feel like God is present. Anyone else have that? Okay. Cup once. <laughs> there are times in our lives where it is very dry, where the feeling is gone. It, it doesn't seem because of circumstance, circumstances that God is there. How can this be happening to me if God were with me? And many times that is kind of the idea that we have. We could assume that it was easy for them to see God's providence, but in fact, they couldn't. The outcome of circumstances was uncertain. Their risks were real and deadly, and God was hidden from the world of sense experience, the same as he is hidden from our daily experiences many times. And that's a reality. A lot of times we want to paint it as, oh yeah, God is always here. I don't always feel that way. I don't always live that way. So what is the message of Esther? What is the defining verse of her story? Which is again, interesting. Here is a book where it starts off all these men plotting to stop these women. And the book is named after a woman, the only book in scripture, who's actually the key character and the most powerful figure in the story. So all these men planning, and the story is really about her. If we're fatalistic, we could look at this and say, well, if I die, I die, right? That's one of the passages. If, I, if we perish, I perish. That could be one view, because sometimes that's my attitude, right? If I die, I die. I guess, where's God in this? But really, I think the obvious choice, what's a, a, a scripture in this book that stands out to you who've read this? For such, I see some of you, I see a few of you ladies saying it, but you didn't want to say it out loud. For such a time as this, who knows? If you are here at this place at this time for such a time as this. And that really is given us kind of a broad outline for what is taking place in this book. And the scene is depicted so clearly throughout this uh, that there is so much coincidence that takes place in this book. And, and coincidence has been described as miracles where God chooses to be anonymous, right? It's like, how did that happen? 
Well, God was at work, but he just kind of kept his name out of it. And that takes place throughout this. First thing we need to see is the setting is in Persia. It is a time of exile. They're in a foreign land with foreign language. They're subject to foreign rules, foreign cultures, foreign gods. And before we're halfway through the story, their very existence as Jewish people is threatened. I went to China in 1986, right after the country opened up and allowed the Western world to kind of go in there. And we got into Beijing and we needed to change our flight to get out. And to go there, we found the building that we were supposed to go to to try and make the flight changes. And so, you know, I think, well, you go into a building and then you get in line and you go and you talk to someone. We had a translator with us who spoke Chinese. And so we figure, well, she'll then help us to get in there. We got into this building. There were no lines. There were just hundreds of people circling these windows. And it was a free-for-all to try and get to the window to find out what you had to do. It was insane. And it was frightening. Me and the guys that I was with, there was three other guys and the woman who was the translator, we literally had to burrow our way through all these people and then get to a window and muscle out people so this woman could talk and say, who never knows what she was saying, right? She was just saying, and we're just like hoping we get out of China alive. Because it was just insane. It was crazy. I'm sure things have changed by now. But it was so awkward to be in a place where I don't know what is going on. I don't know what window to go to. I don't know how. I mean, we stood there and said, what's going on here? Are you sure this is the right place? The foreign culture left us wondering what was taking place. And so many times that is the case. You just feel like, I don't know what's going on here. There are so many things that are out of sorts. And this woman, Esther, finds herself in the middle of this civilization. There was a TV show that was called Four Weddings. And in this TV show, the object was these people would have this elaborate wedding and whoever had the best wedding that was voted for by these people, they would win this honeymoon extravagance, right? And they would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on weddings. And you'd look at this and you'd go, oh my gosh, all that money for this one day. And it just seemed crazy. And what was crazy about it is the people who were involved, they were wondering if they were going to win, right? They weren't there enjoying their wedding. They were there saying, oh, I wonder if everyone's liking these, you know, because it was based on the decor, it was based on the food, it was based on her dress, I think, or something like that. I forget. It was, I used to watch it all the time. No, I just watched it a few times, right? And so it was just like crazy. So much money spent to make it look proper. That doesn't even touch what was taking place, the affluence that the king was showing here, right? He had for six months a display of the splendor. It was over the top times 10, a whole week, open bar for a week. I remember one wedding I went to, there was an open bar, it was a pretty big wedding, and about one hour into it, they said, no more open bar, okay? Because the money had gotten too high. 
because there was a lot of people drinking at this one, right? This was for a whole week. They had people waiting. Everyone had a gold chalice. None of them were alike. They go through and they talk about the marble and the mother of pearl and how beautiful it was. It was just over the top. Talks about there being three separate feasts. In the first chapter alone, feast is used this many times. In fact, the key word in the story mentioned more times in Esther than any other is the word feast. The closest runner-up in Scripture next to Esther is the book of Genesis where the word feast occurs five times. And Esther, the small book of 10 chapters, it occurs 19 times. Feast, 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 feast. See, I think of feast and I think of lots of food, right? It's just more than you can imagine. This is this opulence. It's this idea of everything you need is here. They celebrated indulgence. One indicator of the opulence is the way the wine flows throughout the story. In verse 8, it says that the king was happy. Right? He, he was kind of overjoyed. That's one translation. For six months, this took place. Drinks were served and freely and constantly, continuously. This opulence that's going on, taking place in there. And it was this idea of this is more than anyone could imagine. This is as good as it gets. That's setting the stage for what's about to happen with this one Jewish girl who's going to step into the story with this dynamic. You know, when I think of all these weddings and that extravagance, I did three weddings this last year, well, this year, that were up in the mountains, right? Two of them in Mount Baldy and one of them not quite at Mount Baldy, just in the little foothills, just these real rustic, really cool weddings, where the money wasn't spent on all the elaborate things, but boy, was it intimate. Boy, was it great. And in one of the couples, they said, we wanted to have the money for our honeymoon so we could enjoy and remember that. And it's like, makes sense, right? You know, oh, spend a lot of money on one day or spend a week in, you know, Costa Rica. What should we do? What's the more important thing? And what we see throughout the book of Esther is that all this opulence bows down to this one Jewish girl. And again, how does that happen? It's this providence. It's this invisible figure behind the scenes, working in the lives of people, working in the foolishness of people. King Xerxes... There's this kind of element of OCD. I don't know. If you've got OCD, you're freaking out right now. It's like, mm, take that off, take that off, right? <laughs> There's some things that take place that happen. And this orderliness that the king has. And what I mean by that is that everything was in its place. We can't speak to Persia society as a whole, but certainly in the palace, the king's court is perfectly complete, and everything is in sevens and in threes, whole numbers. 
It's like we have to have, you know, a seven-day feast. There are seven eunuchs of the king's harem. All of them are named. Seven princes of the royal counselors. And again, all of them are named that I can't name. He had to have everything he wanted in the proper way, the proper time. There is this idea of I'm going to put this together. I'm going to control every element that there is. I'm going to make sure that everything is there and is in its place so that I can feel secure. And so here is this person with opulence. Here is this person who's got OCD, wants everything just perfect. And then we start to see it all unfold because this Queen Vashti comes in and says, I ain't going to go be paraded out in front of your guys just because you had too much to drink. And so we see that it's a dangerous time. It's an insecure time as well. As well balanced as the king's court appeared, he himself was very unbalanced. He was vulnerable to his own fits of rage, to his own overindulgence in the wine. We see how he can't make a decision for himself. In fact, his advisors are forced to make all his decisions for him. With all his wanting to take control, he is out of control. And all this is going to shape what takes place at this time. There's a dangerous nature to the time that's illustrated in this chapter. From verse 2, where the king sat on his royal throne, royal is a key word. Here, it is his royal glory, royal wine. It's the queen's royal crown, the king's royal edict. It's this royalty that's going to take a negative turn. The king's counselors advise Xerxes to take from Vashti her royal position. Xerxes had commanded the queen to present herself to his court, treating her as an object to display like all these other beautiful possessions. He wants to control everything, but now here's a person and he can't control her. She refuses in spite of the fact that she has no voice in this story. We never hear her words. Her reason for disobeying the king aren't given. We can assume, but we don't know because it was not considered even important. It didn't matter what she thought. It didn't matter what she said. It just mattered that she didn't obey the king's orders. In a panic, the king counselors panic. They begin to catastrophize all that might happen. And... Some of us are good at catastrophizing thing, right? You guys know what I mean? Your kids are supposed to be home at 10 and it's 11 and there's been a car accident in your mind and they've gone off a cliff or they've been abducted to Mexico, right? You know, anything could happen and they're just at Starbucks drinking coffee, you know, a block away. But you catastrophize it. You think, oh, what could happen? Oh, what's the worst that could happen? These people freak out. <gasps> Ashley said no. All the women may say no. Oh, no, we got to make a royal edict. Really? For this event, all the princes, all the people, all the provinces, all the women would look with contempt on their husbands. If a woman can disobey a king, what could a wife do? They started catastrophizing the whole thing. It's worse than we could imagine. And so here they are with all their wealth, all their power, all they're trying to take control, and they are out of control. And it's really humorous. And it's really like us. 
we want to control everything. We want to play this, okay, I've got everything. And if you're OCD, I'll take this picture off for you. <laughs> you're there freaking out. All this is taking place. They, they feared the repercussions of what would happen. And, and so what happens here in conclusion is the light of all these indications of the times, all Esther has to do is succeed in this environment all that she had to do, we're going to find out, is be beautiful. It turns out that her destiny demanded that she become more, much more. The fact that she was beautiful brought her into the story, but now she had to be more than just what they saw and what she was. I want to talk about the differences between Kronos and kairos. They're both words that are used for time. The ancient Greeks had these two words, chronos and kairos. While chronos has to do with chronological, it's kind of an order of things, sequential time. Kairos signifies a proper or opportune time for action. What looks to us like normal stuff of life is our preparation time for the opportune time. One day, all the preparation pays off, and then is the time to act. Right now is such a time. There's a chronology that's taking place. It is God's kairos time breaking into our chronos time. That matters. A friend of mine was in the Marines and he married a woman who was in the army. And in spite of all the people saying, this isn't a good way to start a marriage. You're, you're not going to see each other. You're going to be separated. It's going to be difficult. They still chose to get married and they did have a lot of difficulties, a lot of struggles. He was deployed and found himself in Kuwait. In the Marine Corps, there was a base there, and so he was there in Kuwait. And he's there eating at the mess hall with thousands of other military personnel. And he sees someone, he says, that looks like my wife. And it turns out it was. They had no way of knowing they would be at the same place at the same time. How do you control the U.S. military, right? The Marine Corps and the Army, they had no say where they were going to be. And they find themselves in the same tent at the same time. And it looks like this is one of those Kairos moments. This is something that happens. What are the odds? This is a coincidence that can't be grasped. But you see, it doesn't matter if the moment is there. It was up to them to make the most of the moment. And if they can't make the most of this moment, then the marriage doesn't work. And unfortunately, that was the case for them. And so here is a story that's taking place in history. And there is going to come 
a divine moment that no one knows is divine because there is no telegraphing it. There is no miraculous parting of the Red Sea. There is no blind person getting their sight back. There is just the mundane things taking place, but then comes an opportunity. That Kairos moment where you can take the chronology of what's happening and change everything if you respond to that moment. And I wonder how many of those moments take place in our lives. We're just going along. We're living. You're just kind of making things happen as they happen. And all of a sudden there is a moment that is divine. And are we ready for it or have we been living so much excluded, so much blinded maybe by the opulence and and blinded by, you know, all the trying to take control that we miss the opportunity that shows up. That Kairos moment that caught us off guard because we are living in the Kronos time period. It's... God's Kairos time breaking into our Kronos time that allows us to make changes that impact our life and the life of those around it. Or to say it another way, eternity intersecting the present moment happens. Are we aware of it? In Psalm 31 verse 14 and 15 it says but as for me i trust in you O lord i say you are my god my times are in your hands will we live our lives so when these moments happen our lives are ready to respond you can't plan them No matter of control or staging is going to make them happen. You just have to be ready when they do. Because when that time comes, who knows if you were here at this place and at this time for such a time as this, where you would be involved. And so we start our story with the absence of God, with the presence of the king in all his glory with the the woman who would not even have a voice who sets in motion all that is about to take place and the way God is going to work in this stage at this scenario is amazing. And it's going to be a beautiful journey. Let's not miss it. Not miss that journey or ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther where your absence in name forces us to look in ways that maybe we're not used to. And maybe, Lord, what we need to do is live our lives in a way that even though we do not see something miraculous or or sense something powerful, we can still have faith that you are at work, that there is the invisible hand of God all over our lives, 
and our stories, orchestrating and planning for the benefit of humanity. And that we have opportunity to be a part of that when that time comes. God, may we make the most of our days so that when the opportune moment happens, we are ready. That we will have the voice that makes the difference. That we would have the courage to step in to those times and recognize your hand. We do pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May you recognize that through the chronology of time that feels and seems sterile of any purpose it is actually pregnant with the possibility that God is about to work. And when God opens the opportunity, May we be willing and ready to step in. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Hope to see you Wednesday. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.